0: It's nothing new. The good news is the uh, outcome is already known and that uh, Satan's defeat is certain. His frustration will increase and so his irritation will increase. But the victory is is, uh, Christ's. What is worship as a spiritual discipline? So whereas with study, I, uh, I enjoy study. So that was one I was looking forward to. I was really glad I didn't get simplicity or fasting. Uh, So those were all good. Well, worship, well, that's not a big deal. Darren should be doing that. I shouldn't. He's the worship guy. But I got it. And then as I started to look into it, I came to realize how little I'd ever done it. Um, You know, we go, most of us probably, almost all of us go every Sunday and we sit through a time that we call worship time. But... I had so little actually participated, have so little actually participated in the activity that God calls worship. So what's worship? Worship is really prostrating ourselves before God to see his greatness. It's not to see our littleness, but it's reducing the focus on us so as to increase the focus on him. I like to think of it... So probably you've discovered that if, you, uh, if you've dropped something on a wooden floor, the most effective way to find it, at least in my experience, is you get down on the floor and you look along the floor and you see anything that's sticking up. Not to diminish God, obviously, that's, it's a somewhat weak analogy, but that's sort of, to me, the idea of worship, is to get down on the floor to see God sticking up. It's really to focus uh, so much on him that I understand more of him and I'm not quite so worried about me. The two words that are used primarily, and these are overwhelmingly, there are a lot of words, well, probably about eight, uh, seven or eight words in the Old Testament that are used, sometimes translated worship. The one that's used for the most part, though, means that. It's to depress, not to depress yourself, but to depress your well I guess it is to depress yourself, to depress yourself physically, to prostrate yourself, to uh, bow down, to make obeisance, to do reverence, etc to fall on one's knees and touch one's forehead to the ground. So we think of that uh, that's pretty foreign to our tradition. Somebody from, from uh, a tradition of, of monarchy, they would probably be more familiar with that. For us, we're not. We rebel against it instinctively. We regard it as un-American. Um, and physically, may or may not be. That's not the point. The point is spiritually, uh, that that's the proper attitude for us coming into the presence of the living God. One of the reasons that worship is so difficult for me and perhaps for you is that we fail to appreciate the magnitude, the greatness of the awesomeness of God, and we'll look about that. Look at that a little bit uh, later when we get to Isaiah. But were we, when we, I should say, when we, when we come into His presence, my perception is that that will be our automatic reaction, and it is for almost everybody. I think as we read in Scripture about people who who come into God's presence, their automatic reaction is, "I'm toast." God is so great, so awesome, so holy, what am I? Why am I here? And I suspect, personally, that that will be my reaction when I see Christ. So this is not an idle exercise. This is not intellectual. This is practice for the time when faith becomes sight and hope becomes reality. So here we get a chance to practice what we'll spend eternity doing. And, you know, you've been victims as well as I of uh, probably satanically inspired visions of heaven, of clouds and harps and, and standing around in, uh, in bath, large bath towels, uh, playing songs and doing who knows what for eternity. Of heaven's not going to be anything like that but I have no idea what it will be like or I have little idea of what it will be like except we will be so overwhelmed and consumed with the God of the universe Uh, and we'll be more fully alive, more fully ourselves, more fully all that he made us from eternity past to be in heaven, worshiping him. And we can get a foretaste of that with worship here. The word that's used in the New Testament is actually a word that says to kiss toward. And we think of that like pros canio, canio, is kiss, pros toward. So we think of that, you know, you might think of that, you know, your wife blowing a kiss to you or something, or, or maybe you to her. Um, but the idea really is that it, it's a term of reverence, uh, the same ideas in the Old Testament of, of uh, kissing your hand toward uh, someone of higher rank. Now, I don't know, for the guys in the military, you might try that with your, with your uh, officer in charge, see how it goes. Uh, but for someone, particularly in an Eastern culture like the Persian Empire, it probably would have been appropriate. The other thing was that same idea from Hebrew to Greek, that same idea of touching one's forehead to the ground. Remember Alexander the Great okay, came in, took over the Persian Empire, Um, created an empire that stretched from Greece, our Greece, in um, the west all the way to the borders of Pakistan in the east. Well, one of the customs he adopted, because he found it to his taste, was this custom of proskuneo. He required all the men who came into his presence to get down on their knees and then touch their forehead to the ground, approaching him as though he were a god or a Persian emperor. Didn't go over very well with the Macedonians. That's one of the things that ultimately led them to demand that he lead them back to, back to Greece. But that's the idea. If, if we, if they, and probably, I'm sure Daniel did this when coming into Nebuchadnezzar's presence, owed that to a human king, a deeply flawed, in the case of Alexander or Nebuchadnezzar, a deeply flawed human king, how much more do we owe it to the genuine king of the universe? that kind of obedience, obeisance, and reverence. The other words in both Testaments that are translated worship often have to do with the external ceremonies of worship, but these are the ones that I really wanted to focus on today. The emphasis here is on lowering oneself in order to see God more clearly, but not to focus too much on the lowering part. My tendency as a human being is it's all about me. And it is, of course, but, uh, but of course it isn't. It's not all about me. But my tendency when I say, okay, I've got to get myself lower, is to focus on the lowering. Anybody remember Oliver Twist from back when you were in school and reading that? There was a character in Oliver Twist called Uriah Heap. Dickens chose his names wisely, sort of an oily name and for a really oily character, and he acknowledged himself as the most humble man in London. words to that effect. Well, of course, you've sort of lost the focus there if you're acknowledging yourself as the most humble. But well, we can do that when we focus on the lowering ourselves rather than focusing on the God we are going to worship. So the essence, I'll give you a Tozer's quote there, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. The goal is not to think about God and not to portray him in ways we think that make him look good. It's to portray him accurately, to see him and to show him to others as he really is. Uh, That reference I give you in Job particularly in the early part of Job. You remember Job has three friends. Job has this these huge calamities. They come to comfort him uh, about his situation. And Job really gets frustrated with his friends. And he, one of the charges, he probably the main charge he brings against them, is that they show partiality toward God. It seems an odd term. How do you show partiality toward God? Well, they seek to portray him not as he is, but as as... They think he should be, and in job's case, it's particularly that that God instantly punishes the evil and rewards the good. Well, he doesn't do that all the time. He can, but he doesn't do that all the time. and so and if you notice, go to hip uh, skip all the way to the end of Job in job 42, what charge does God bring against the three friends? That one that they're not portraying God accurately. they have not spoken of him as Job, my friend, has. May we not be guilty of that. We need to see God not as we would prefer him to be, but as he really is. And this reference in Isaiah, to me, captures what I think God has shown me about worship probably better than any other. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As I said before, this is probably going to be, for many of us, our reaction when we come into the presence of God and see for the first time him as he really is. But there's a second reaction that necessarily will follow from that. Looking ahead to the reference I gave you there in 1 John 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That sight of God, that view of God as he really is, must necessarily change us. It's not going to change God, but it not it has to change us. Uh, Foster, the book that we're teaching from, uh, Celebration of Discipline, says, Worship that does does not change us is not worship, has not been worship. So that experience of coming into God's presence, just as the ultimate experience of each of us who know Christ coming before him, life to the next, will change us. It will change us to be that perfect and unique likeness of Christ, sort of Christ- Uh, in some way uniquely expressed through each one of you and that's what happens when we see Christ as he really is and that's what worship is intended to do one of the things that worship mostly it's intended to exalt God but it also results in changing us now how does that happen well here here on earth meaning how does it happen here I'm Okay, Michael's not here, right? Michael Coffee, Good. Okay, good. Um, so, Alec, I know won't, won't out me, but conservative Protestant evangelical tradition focuses mostly up here. Okay? Focuses on the head. Mostly, some on the emotions, but mostly on the intellect, especially among men. Heaven forbid that we should actually be emotional That's one of the things, frankly, that Dallas and others in the men's ministry have done over the years, uh, Dave as well, is to allow us the freedom to experience more of the emotional side of being a man of God. John Eldredge is probably most famous for doing that. The focus is, the emphasis is not, okay, we we now get to cry and and do all those, those girly things. It's to be more fully, more fully orbed as who we are as men. Well, worship, I think, other traditions in uh, Christianity perhaps do a more complete job than we do uh, of bringing in all the aspects of who we are and subordinating those to our worship of God. What do I mean by that? Physical attitudes. The attitudes of our body influence how we view God. That's why you'd you'd see in a tradition of of, uh, monks, that many times when they were seeking God, they would lie on the floor, completely prostrate, uh, just sort of stretched out there, asking God for forgiveness or guidance, whatever it was they were seeking God for. And that attitude of complete prostration, as we've seen, approaches more closely to uh, what God tells us about worship. Do I say you need to go home and lie down on the floor and seek God? Not necessarily. Maybe he, he leads you to do that. But it's the idea that as our bodies are, it can lead our minds and spirits in the same direction. That's why liturgical traditions, for example, uh, uh, Catholics in particular, that's why you have that little bench there. So you can kneel. It can become automatic and, and uh, not very meaningful to you. But if we yield ourselves to him, the attitudes of our bodies can lead our spirits into worship. So, and similarly... The, uh, the who we are as a whole, mind, emotions, and body. So, okay, this sounds all very mysterious and, and so forth, and what do I do about it? Well, on Sunday mornings, we're supposed to go to worship. That's why we're there. Well, we're supposed to go to listen to Marty, and we're supposed to sing. Well, no, that's not what we said. We said we're supposed to go to worship. So how do we lift those two up? That's why Marty, <clears throat> excuse me, that's why Marty and Darren are there to lead us into God's presence in worship. How do we participate in that? And I give you some hints there that, that uh, I can't claim any credit for. They're in Foster's book. And I have tried this. Um, spend time preparing for that time of worship. Now, this is, it's very contrary to me. I tend to be people-oriented. So when I walk into the sanctuary, I'm looking around for people to talk to. You may be the same, or maybe you you, uh, just want to get in there and sit down. But prepare for this time of worship. Um, Who was was here under Paul Hansen? Okay. If you were, you remember, Paul really stressed this. um, That idea that, This is not just another meeting in the week. It's a time of encounter with the God of the universe. So, come into the sanctuary. Think about who you're going to meet. It isn't Marty. It isn't Darren. It's God. Yes, you walk the the whole day through with him. But this is a special time that you've set aside and he's set aside for that encounter with a group of other people. So... Spend some time seeking him quietly by yourself in the sanctuary for what he will show you of himself. Also, spend some time seeking him for what he's going to show you through those people who are up on the stage. Through Marty, through Darren, through the worship team. Seeking God on their behalf to equip them to lead you into God's presence. Because you know that's what Darren says when he comes up front often. Let's go into God's presence. Let me lead you into God's presence. That's why he's there. That's why we need to be there, is to go into God's presence in a special way. <clears throat> Again, you can do it. We need to do it anywhere. But in a particular way, we need to do it in corporate worship. And the third part is to be alert to the people around you for those who may be in need. Not by necessarily by talking to them, but by seeing them. And I can almost guarantee that You've either been, been on one end of this or the other looking around for the guy, the man or the woman who's really broken, who comes in, I mean, they could barely lift their heads. They may stay seated, for example, when we rise for worship. Seek God on their behalf. He may lead you to, to talk to them later after the service, but mostly you're seeking God on behalf of them. You don't know what the problem is. You don't need to. God does. But you're seeking him for them. Or it may be somebody who's, and I can almost guarantee that anybody with small children has been there, who's having a really hard day feeling like God is, is around. It's been really tough for the kids. We stayed up too late, you know, whatever. But getting into that attitude of, of being comforted and encouraged and, and joyful in God's presence is very far from where they are. Seek God for them to help them to experience more of his presence in this time. So, I give you, can you skip ahead to the questions there, Alec? This other stuff is just stuff we've already covered. Um, So, think about the most meaningful times of worship you've yet had in your Christian experience. What made those special and made them stand out in your memory? How do those experiences change you? And uh, just so I don't have to answer the question at the table, I'll go ahead and tell you mine. (coughs) probably a, most, a really meaningful one was at the men's retreat two or three years ago. Um, the, f- the first time we ever sang the song, You're a Good, Good Father. I was in tears. The idea that, I, I think I knew about the You're a Good, Good Father part, but the idea, I am loved by you, and that's all I need that that defines me, that I am loved by the God of the universe. For me, that was one of the most meaningful times I've ever had in worshiping God. Okay, what makes you uncomfortable about congregational worship? I can almost guarantee that at least half of you have been or perhaps are uncomfortable about congregational worship. I've seen you. You've stood there and you haven't been singing. And raise your hands. And I'm here, by the way. I don't raise my hands. Um, Forget that. Okay, um, But that idea that this is not a guy activity, this is a women's activity, all that stuff. Well, unfortunately, God may not allow us to, to continue to be in that place. I'm not telling you you have to raise your hands or dance in the aisles. Please don't dance in the aisles, by the way. Um, but But I am saying that we need to be probably a bit more open to to worshiping God in that time, I need to worry less about the guy next to me. He's not worried about me. He's worried about me worrying about him. Okay? I guarantee it. So, so I need to worry less about that and, and be concerned more about my relationship with God. And then lastly, how can, which is what I just talked about, how can you better prepare for times of congregational worship and how will you this Sunday? Okay, any questions? Take them to your tables. Thanks very much.